This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news. We begin with breaking news, of course. This is an ABC News special report. And we have a decision just breaking from the Supreme Court. On the U.S. Supreme Court. Hey, we're coming on the air with breaking news. The Supreme Court has just rejected a challenge. Good to the morning. Court. We're coming on the air with breaking news from the Supreme Court at this hour. Hello and welcome to Polylog. A dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. We're back with a new episode of our Supreme Court season. Thanks for your patience, everyone. Between election and life, took a bit longer to come back with this episode, but we are so excited to talk all things reform. That's right. We're talking about reform. Reform both of the court itself, all the proposals out there, and some proposals of our own for ways that the Supreme Court could be reformed and ways that the media itself could reform its coverage of the court to just do a better job at it. But, you know, there there's reason to be talking about it, of course, not just because of the dramatic ruling we saw this year overturning Roe v. Wade, but because there is indeed some misalignment on the court politically. Republican presidents have appointed 15 of the last 20 justices and six of the current nine justices, even though Democrats have held the presidency for 17 of the last 29 years. So Democrats have been in office more than half the time, but have appointed less, well, just about 25% of the justices. Right. So it's kind of really messed up in terms of misalignment. Yeah, misalignment of opportunity to even be able to fill any of these slots. And of course, you know, if Democrats are unhappy with that or the public is unhappy with that because Democrats have received more votes in six of the last seven presidential elections as well, people are unhappy. People might say, well, you know, just wait. When there's a vacancy, Democrats can can fill the vacancy. And indeed, Democrats likely will when they have the chance to do so. They still have the Senate. So if there happens to be a vacancy over the next few years, they could, in fact, fill that vacancy. But there are other ways as well to address this misalignment or to inject some reform that maybe isn't even a result of political frustration, but other frustrations on the court. Right. And remember, Congress has a lot of power over the court if it wants to exercise that power. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big if, right? Yeah, if, if, big if. Congress sets the Supreme Court's budget, determines its appellate jurisdiction, the number of justices, and surprisingly, can impeach members of the court. Although that's never, never actually been happened. Right. It's been attempted, but it hasn't It hasn't successfully been... Well, I guess you could say it was successful because an impeachment happened, but no one was removed, right? We should be clear. There were apparently, one thing I learned recently, not surprisingly, impeach Earl Warren billboards all over the country. Wow. Yeah. Back when he was the chief justice of the Supreme Court and oversaw a lot of controversial rulings course, Brown v. Board of Education being one of them, desegregating public schools. Yeah, we've talked extensively over our last few months about the attempts by FDR to quote-unquote pack the court. And whenever a major political party is frustrated by the court, the idea of reform rises to the top. And it's, as you mentioned, Naomi, made it into media discussions, of course, according to an analysis of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post and USA Today, there were more than 400 articles in one year's time about court packing in the context of this Supreme Court. Whereas one year before that, in 2019, there were just 100 articles. So increased four times in one year, 400% increase. Pretty, pretty big. And so then it's not surprising that when... Joe Biden was elected. He promised that he would put together a presidential commission on reform. And he did just that when he came into office. Yeah, the presidential commission on reform, 
released a 294-page report, so an almost 300-page report, and it came out less than a year ago. This nonpartisan commission did not make like full recommendations, but instead did like a really, really thorough job introducing and presenting the various arguments around the major reform proposals. It included prominent law school professors, retired federal judges, and lead fellows and directors from organizations like the NAACP and the American Enterprise Institute. And it's probably a good thing with the giant list of people who are part of it that they didn't have recommendations because they would not have There would be no recommendations. Yeah, they wouldn't (laughs) have agreed on anything. But it was a really, really good report, and it kind of will serve as a good baseline for our discussions here. Absolutely. And, you know, there were. it was actually a really thoughtful report, too, because it noted some things like the fact that a reform doesn't actually have to be successful to make an impact on court behavior. And it brought up the example, as we talked about a lot, of FDR's court packing plan. Of course, that plan failed. But between him introducing the plan and the plan failing, the Supreme Court actually started to uphold more of his New Deal programs maybe in an effort to say, look, you don't need to reform us. And in fact, that's what some opponents of the court packing plan said. They said, why do we need this plan when the Supreme Court is upholding some of your programs? So indeed, just talking about reform or a political party actually putting reform on the table and proposing it formally can change court behavior. It's happened in the past. It can happen again. Yeah, and just to kind of briefly go through some of the potential reform proposals that people on various sides of the court consider, the first one, which is the one we hear the most of, is the possibility of expanding the court. So the idea of expanding the court means literally that, adding more justices. There's arguments of adding people up to 12, 15, up to 25, 30. There are definitely courts in Europe that are closer to that 30 mark. Yeah, very true. And arguments against the expansion, critics worry that packing the court would encourage parties to routinely add justices to bring the court more into line with their ideological stances or partisan political goals. This would compromise the court's long-term capacity to perform its essential role policing, the excesses of other branches, and protecting individual rights. Essentially... The court would be trying to do too much to whoever had appointed them. Yes, yes. Very, very good point. And there are some interesting concerns about expanding the court as well. If you look at other countries where expansion took place, they're not the best examples of strong democracies. So detailed in this report are some recent historical examples And they mentioned that in 1989, Argentinian President Carlos Menem worked to draw greater power into the executive branch and one year later added four new members to a formerly five-member Supreme Court, enough to basically take full control of the court. In 2004, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela reigned in judicial independence and expanded the size of the constitutional court from 20, there's that higher number, right? to 32 members. In 2010, Turkish leader Recep Erdogan, who's been much in the news over recent years, he consolidated control over the Constitutional Court, expanding its membership from 10 to 17 and altering the process by which judges were selected. So he did more than just expanded the court. And it goes on and on with with examples like this. So just something to think about when we're talking about court expansion and concerns over it, which is perhaps why several polls out there show that large majorities of the public oppose expanding the Supreme Court. Sure. I mean, for some of the arguments for expanding the court is that if you don't think that the court is working in an efficient and fair manner or representative of a democracy, it is the fastest way to to, to course correct, right? A lot of the other proposals will take years, if not decades, to get there. And so if you are someone who thinks that in the impact of a court that is not democratically representative of the people, some people feel that taking your time is not an option. 
Exactly. And I think that's some of the most powerful arguments for expansion, which is that this court does not represent the people, does not represent the public at large, and that no court as small as nine could do so in a country as diverse as ours, right? And that there should be expansion. As diverse as ours and also with the limited opportunities, and we'll talk about the kind of ways that justices get on, on by life terms and um, just the limited uh, opportunities for filling new seats. Exactly. And some of the expansion proposals take into account these sort of anti-democratic concerns, these political concerns, by working to make an expansion less political, you know, saying that Correct. maybe every president can appoint two members of the court, regardless of, you know, whether there's a vacancy or not, making it feel fairer and not just like, you know, it's FDR saying, I get to appoint all the people Correct. who are old, you know. Right. <laughs> or I get to appoint all the people who are replacing the old members, right, for every old member. Yeah, absolutely. And then just kind of to briefly note some of the other popular reforms. The next one we would know are rotating judges. So judges rotate between service on the Supreme Court and lower federal courts. This is a way to kind of get around the lifetime appointment that the lifetime appointment doesn't just have to be the Supreme Court. It could be with our federal courts overall. And it's, you know, as as we've said Several times before, originally, Supreme Court members did have to ride circuit. They had to service judges on circuit courts, and they don't have to do that anymore, but they did originally have those duties. Absolutely, and there's a huge backlog at the district and appellate courts. Yeah, no backlog at the Supreme Court, really, because they can decide to... How much work they want to do. (laughs) Yeah, how much work they want to do. And as in recent years, they've reduced their work in half, essentially, over the last 20, 30 years. So after rotating judges, the next reform proposal that's popular is term limits. So not a lifetime appointment. Correct. The idea is that Supreme Court justices should be limited to possibly 18 year terms. Other scholars and commentators have questioned the idea of altering the system of life tenure, which has been in place since the Constitution. This would be a much bigger accomplishment or change than rotating judges because it would have to be a constitutional amendment. Right. But, you know, 18 years is still a long time. Still a long time. I mean, up until just a few decades ago, the average term of a justice was 16 years. That's when they had life tenure. Correct. And and now it's over 30 plus. Yeah, Yeah, essentially over 30. Yeah. But there are things that can be done that are not about putting more justices on or changing their terms, but just changing the way the court itself operates, changing some of their rules. And I don't think these ideas are talked about as much as they maybe should because they could have profound effects. One of the ways to do this is to require that the Supreme Court have a supermajority if they want to deem something unconstitutional, like a federal statute or a piece of legislation. This would make it more difficult for the Supreme Court to invalidate legislation and other acts of the elected branches on constitutional grounds. So they can't just willy-nilly go left and right saying this is unconstitutional and this is unconstitutional and this is unconstitutional, as it sometimes seems that they do for every president out there that has a major piece of legislation passed. And it's kind of frustrating, I think, for both parties. Yeah, not all Supreme Courts can strike down laws. Just in Canada, the Canada Supreme Court can strike a statute, but the legislature can overturn the result and restore the statute. In Britain and New Zealand, the high court can make a declaration of incompatibility, which is like the most English sounding thing ever, <laughs> Yeah, with the Bill of Rights, but doing so does not invalidate the legislation. Yeah, basically, so it's like a big giant finger wag yeah. from the courts. Yeah, which could have real political implications, potentially. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what if that's how you got divorced? <laughs> uh, I declare of, of incompatibility. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would be incredible. <laughs> there are also other ways to restore public confidence in the court, which, as we've said and documented many times, has been on the downswing. <laughs> 
Uh, and that is to reduce the use of emergency orders. This is the so-called shadow docket, where the Supreme Court makes decisions without hearing arguments and without indicating which justices voted which way and just in the middle of the night saying, here's what we're doing. And sometimes they do that not unanimously, but on six, three lines or five, four lines, like ideologically making these sorts of decisions. So work could be done to reform the court's rules to stop them from being able to do that, right? To say, look, maybe you can only release an emergency order if it's unanimous. That seems like a reasonable rule to me. Reminds me of how some city councils, like our own, will put something on their quote-unquote consent calendar, right? Where it's an issue that, you know, they've got lots of little issues that come up. They want to deal with them, but they don't have time to talk through every tiny little detail of it. And so they just kind of put it on the quote-unquote consent calendar, right? Yeah, the consent agenda. Absolutely. And unless someone wants to discuss it, you pull it from the consent agenda, and then there's a full staff and council conversation about it. But for the most part, you just approve everything in the consent agenda. So it gets you to the meteor work that the legislative body wants to deal with. Exactly right. And just for some data on the use of emergency orders and how it's changed dramatically in just the last few years, back in the 2017 term, which was not that long ago, we were doing polylog back then, there were five orders from which at least three justices publicly dissented. During the 2020 term, there were 29 orders where at least three justices publicly dissented. So that's just, it's just messed up. It shouldn't be dealt with summarily if there's such disagreement among the members of the court. Just hear it out in the open for everyone to hear. Transparency matters. Even just having a little bit of data around who voted for what would be an improvement from its current structure. Yeah, because then the public can't even understand the substantive legal arguments around these issues. So we definitely recommend people check out that 300-page document. It is a shame the White House didn't make a bigger deal about it. A lot of people put in a lot of work in it. It would be helpful if news organizations referred to it more often. There hasn't been a robust study by the executive branch uh, that has been shared with the public about the Supreme Court. Like we should refer to it and say the Biden administration, you know, identified these three things. Like just even referencing it would be, I think, a step up. But in terms about the reforms themselves, in true polylog fashion, I would encourage people to think about not just how like the, what their immediate gut reaction is, because I think our gut reaction to the Supreme Court is shaped and influenced by the poor media coverage of it. Try to think of like what that reform is trying to do. And if that seems like something you would feel comfortable with or seems fair to eventually work towards, not so much just the pure, it, the legacy institution itself should never be touched. We kind of want to move past about whether or not it ever can be and have a broader conversation as to if and when does that happen. Exactly, because it has been reformed many times in its history, right? right? If we just say the Supreme Court never gets reformed and we just accept it at face value at that, then we're saying they don't need accountability. Yes, exactly right. But we have some reforms of our own. Yes, our own ideas that maybe didn't make it to this inter this. I mean, where section. is the Biden administration? They're not like calling us. Yeah, exactly. It's like so rude. Now, of course, a lot of our reform is focused on communication because <laughs> that's what we're all about. We're not saying those other reforms wouldn't be helpful. Probably each one would be helpful in one way or another and shaking up the institution and making it more transparent and more accountable to the people and more respectful of other branches of government and their work. However, we have some ideas that um, we'd like to add to the debate. So not, you know, no one listening to Polylog will be surprised with some of these ideas. So first of all, number one on the list, get a real press office, Supreme Court. It is embarrassing that you don't prepare press releases, hold press conferences, you know, actually discuss and 
explain your rulings for a broader public. The members of the Supreme Court, as we've documented ad nauseum, love to complain about press coverage of the court and to belittle press coverage of the court and to say the press doesn't get it and they take them out of context and blah, 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 blah. But you know what? You could make a difference to put yourself into better context by having an actual press office rather than demanding that media organizations read your legalese-laden even that you like send an intern to run and get it yeah like get out of here give me a break prepare something for the public like every other government institution from the largest like the department of defense to the smallest a small little city has a press office issues press releases to help the public stay more informed and and to be clear press releases is the bare absolute freaking absolutely minimum. Absolutely right. Like, we should be thinking about, like, educational materials, yep. other things to make the court understandable. Mm-hmm. You could do, like, educational pamphlets for kids in high schools exactly and, like, right. all sorts of educational and awareness materials. And how about... For each case, not yes. just about the institution itself. Yes, and providing historical context and information that's relevant to the decision-making. Totally. And also making the court more accessible to speakers of other language, which it is not at all. Get it together. Insulting. So, so yeah, get a real press office. That press is, office and communications team. Yes, mm-hmm. that's the bare minimum. We also think justices should routinely grant interviews that break down their thinking on key portions of their rulings. And it's fine if they don't want to answer on future topics, but they are public servants. Yep. <laughs> and they should be accountable to the public. And they should make themselves available to explain their work in an accessible medium, not just when they're selling their book. Yeah, and not just when they're on C-SPAN reflecting on you know the history of the Supreme Court 100 years ago. No. Tell us what you're doing and why you did it. Like every other public servant, you must be held accountable. Nothing you do is any different from what other public servants do. Stop thinking because you wear a robe, you are not accountable to the public and your thoughts and processes are somehow sacred and sacrosanct. Yeah, and they could just answer how they reach their decisions and answer to those implications. Yeah. Like... How do you do your job? There's no reason for every little step to be so secretive. Mm-hmm. Exactly None. right. And if the justices did it, then former clerks might be more compelling mm-hmm. to share details. Other staff members. It would open up the court as an institution overall if these nine people felt like they could be a little bit more transparent about their work. And it would invite greater understanding on their terms When you refuse to go on, meet the press, and give an interview explaining why you did what you did, you let, you cede that power to political opponents, to other politicians, to commentators, to journalists, God forbid, and moderators who will twist your language, distort your intentions to serve their own purposes. That is the world we live in now. And the court's popularity is crashing because there's nobody out there defending themselves and putting it on their terms. By becoming more transparent, you can invite people into the process and invite greater respect and understanding for what you do and understanding of the institution that supposedly all of you on the Supreme Court want to uphold and protect and likely protect from reform because you like the way you do things. Well, If you're not clear about how you do it and you don't sing the praises of the current way, then there's going to be reform, believe it or not. The court could also consider starting up a Supreme Court research service. It could be modeled after the Congressional Research Service that creates a research report on each case and fact checks all briefs and petitions. Yes. As well as draft opinions and dissents. There's no reason that we can't have more supplemental writings and summaries Of the court, by the court. Yeah, I mean... For different audiences. And for the justices themselves. This is where it's so important because when you think about it, when you reflect on what the justices are ingesting, what are they reading? What are the arguments about each case that they are are getting? 
every single argument comes from somebody, everything that they're reading comes from somebody who has a stake in the case, right? It's someone who originally petitioned the court or it's somebody who is defending the, the status quo, right? And maybe, maybe you could argue that the lower court's decision, the writing of the previous lower court judge, maybe you could say that is unbiased. But still, we need more text, more information that the justices are ingesting that is completely nonpartisan and has no position whatsoever, right? The only position is the facts and the reality of the case. Because as we've seen again and again, a lot of these opinions are based on amicus briefs that are just false. They're not true, but they're submitted by big organizations with a stake in the case that are trying to warp the, the thinking of the judges to advance their own personal goals or organizational goals. And that's fine, right? That's their role in, in the system, right? They want to they state their case. But the justices should have more firm ground to stand on, more firm facts to review and look at. And so this Congressional Research Service, which actually, there is a Congressional Research Service that actually exists, the Supreme Court Research Service should be modeled on that. And it could be so helpful to the justices. And then, as you mentioned, Naomi, should be released to the public as well. So the public can see what the justices are basing their decisions on and have a fact-based foundation for understanding these cases right if you're curious about the court there's just very little to chew on read on uh of of what they've produced to get an understanding yeah and if you're not a lawyer even less and this and this service could also as you mentioned in the beginning naomi serve another role which is not only fact-checking the amicus briefs literally annotating them and telling justices look this is not true, this is this is true, this is not true. That would be so helpful for them, but they can also fact check the draft opinions and dissents before they're released, so we make sure that those don't have false statements and false understandings in them. Because right now, as the court operates today, the people who are writing these draft opinions and dissents, they're, they're in their 20s, right? They're like, right. and they've got a million stacks of paper all around them everywhere they're buried in work they have no time they're working late they're they're chugging what is that um energy drinks right <laughs> red bull red bull they're chugging red bull right <laughs> it doesn't drink heavy <laughs> and like they're, they're the ones who are writing these opinions they're the ones who are looking at the drafts that are coming over and suggesting changes they're the ones that are fact checking that's not the people i want doing that work and the Congress could do this. Congress could say, here's what you get, Supreme Court. We're going to increase your budget by 20%. We're going we're gonna to get you a your own Congressional Research Service to improve the quality of your work and reduce the, the weight and the burden on some of your poor staffers. And just changing the expectations. Yeah, yeah. Even that would feel like such a breath of fresh air. Yeah. And Brendan, you have another reform that I am more skeptical on, but you feel very passionately on. This is also a theme in our general life, so uh, <laughs> no surprises. <laughs> okay, so this idea was born from my many, 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 many hours reading and talking about <laughs> The Brethren, the book written by Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong about the court in the 1970s. That book was based on hundreds of interviews that they did with practically every Supreme Court justice on the court at that time, as well as tons and tons of their clerks, multiple clerks from each office in each term. And it was amazing, right? It actually got you inside the heads of the justices, inside the rooms where they were making their deliberations. It was something, a level of transparency that I don't think the court has had ever before seen and has ever seen since. But it was also supremely valuable to understand as a member of the public, as a citizen, as a voter myself, for me to understand how the court operates, 
how they do their day-to-day job, what the role of these people are, how thoughtfully they approach their work, how they negotiate different ideas and decisions and build on different cases to advance whatever they're trying to advance. Hopefully, greater justice for all, right? I was just supremely impressed with that book, but also felt the absence of that in our current time. Right. We don't have that right now. We just have very little, right? We have what the justice is right. We have basically nothing leaking, and and that's it, right? I mean, an, an analysis, and that's not enough for us to truly understand, appreciate, and hold accountable this organization. So here is my idea. Take what Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong did from a reporting standpoint, bring it inside the organization, turn it into an oral history, make it a part of the institution of the Supreme Court, part of the government. So what would this look like? It would look like an oral historian or a small department of oral historians walking around the court, talking to the justices, talking to the clerks who would need to share truthfully their thinking behind the work as it happened, and then for these oral historians to put together for each case a detailed account of how the case came about, how the decision was made by each justice from each office so that the public could at some future time, five years, maybe even 10 years after the the decision was made, the public could understand how that decision was made. It would be fascinating to read and it would lend such understanding to this institution and how it operates. I mean, just think about the value of such an oral history and how the lack of such a history obstructs our understanding of its of the court, its values, and the people who serve. It also distorts our understanding of what it takes to be a good Supreme Court justice, what the job entails, and how much work goes into the process, as we've talked about right here on right. Polylog. Right. As past justices have said, people would have such respect for the Supreme Court if they could only see how thoughtfully the justices approach their work. Well, why not invite the people in? This sort of thing could do it, and it could do it in an, in a way that protects the institution, protects it from the fear that a leak here or there or talking to a journalist would somehow change the decisions of other members on the court. If you release these oral histories, I would think on a two- or five-year cycle, then it would be clear that you know, the decision was already made, it's in the past, but the public can still know what's happening in general on these courts and how these people are operating. Yeah, I think that there's value in that work. I think my skepticism is the idea that the whole court would be open to that level of immediate transparency, that radical transparency. What I think is a possibility is for there to be a justice or two justices that take advantage of this gap and are more transparent and show like their peers and all of us how they do their work and for there to be this kind of like real reckoning of wow you can do amazing work and not do it in this like completely sealed black box where then other justices feel (laughs) or look foolish for continuing in the old old ways yes that would be very nice i agree with that idea right I, I just feel like I don't believe the institution itself can bring about transparency on its own. And and for this level of kind of documentation, you need like a culture of transparency. Well, I think that's true. However, the idea of, again, releasing it on a five-year, even 10-year cycle, I think could be meaningful. I mean, even if you said it's not released until the justice dies, right? I mean... Or, or it's like 20 years. The, the reality is right now, there is nowhere to go to get the inside story of right. how these decisions are made. Right. Nowhere. Even 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, 1,000 years from now, we might never know how the Dobbs decision was put together because there is zero obligation 
from this institution that we as taxpayers fund for these public servants to share how they reached their decisions or how the work was done. Because the only thing that the Supreme Court under law right now must release are their decisions. That is it. They do not, I mean, actually it's their votes. They don't even have to release the decisions, but that's what we get. We get the decisions, but their personal papers, the, the draft opinions, the memos, the work, none of that has to be released to the public ever, ever. And so for a lot of decisions, we don't have that. We just hope historians just pray that somehow someone somewhere at some time will talk or that their personal papers, they will, they will have the foresight to donate them to some university sometime after they die or something or after they leave the court. But there is no obligation to that. And so these major events driven by these leaders in our country, because they are leaders, are not documented anywhere. That is unacceptable. That should not be acceptable to anybody in this time or place. And so that's where I think this could really fill a horrible gap right now in our understanding of a key facet of our federal government. That's all I'll say on that. Yeah, I don't think you said anything about it. (laughs) All right, Naomi. So that's a lot about our discussion on the way the Supreme Court itself can be reformed. Let's now turn our attention to the media itself. And I know we have some ideas in that regard as well. I mean, a lot of these are reforms of the court. And I would love for the press to cover these reforms, not based off of their popularity or what polls are saying about them, but what the impact would be. Like if we could even just change how we talk about some of these reforms, that would also be refreshing. Granted, this is not something we can just like force media organizations to do, but it's just like a reminder that when you're reading something or you're watching something that talks about the Supreme Court and whether or not it should change, if they're only talking about what's popular and what's not, like there was a lot of crappy things this country has done that was popular and somebody had to force it to change. And so I would love to see just like a broader conversation on like the impact and like the long term missed opportunity if we just stay with the court as is. I totally agree with you there. And I think Part of that could be the media getting better at talking about institutions and not just people, People. right? Because you could, and we've seen it time and again, right? You could say, and this is what I think frustrates voters, they're unhappy with one leader, right? Let's say a lot of people don't like George W. Bush. So they're like, you know what? We need someone new. And they put all their heart and soul behind someone like, I don't know, let's say John Kerry. Let's assume that Kerry wins. Well, that doesn't mean he's going to be any, like, solve all the problems that Bush had. He just is a a different person. The problems that we might have with our government might not be about who is in power. They might be about how that power operates. They might be about the structure of the institution of the presidency or the structure of the institution of the Supreme Court. Things as little as whether there are people there who can write reports like the Congressional Research Service that can provide facts. Things as small as that can have a huge difference on how these organizations operate. And so I would love for the media, when they talk about reform, to not just assume it's about people. It's about these institutions. And as you're saying, Naomi, not just about the short term, but the long term impacts. Because if we're only talking about people, we blind ourselves to so much other meaningful change. Absolutely. It's like, impress your grandchildren, not your neighbor. Ooh, that's nicely said. (laughs) It's kind of like, if the car is breaking down, you don't just need a new driver, do you? You might (laughs) need to fix the car. Right. Well, he knows how to drive. He's really good at driving. He's got great ideas. Yeah, but the car is breaking. The car is dead. (laughs) (laughs) The engine's broke. (laughs) It really makes me feel like there needs to be, this is something that could help the media across political issues, right? Across the branches of government to focus on institutions and not just the people themselves. And to just ask, you know, how are these institutions working or not working? Are they the right institutions? Is there need for reform? And when assessing a politician 
or a leader like a justice on the Supreme Court asking, you know, how are they deciding, right? Every leader, every justice has to decide one way or another, right? Are they making good decisions? Are they making bad decisions? How can we as readers or viewers of this journalism better understand get the tools that, and the information we need to understand whether those people are making good decisions or bad decisions. I wish that we had more focus in our media on that so that we could, we could know whether these people were doing a good job or not. Isn't that the whole point? I mean, <laughs> in any place in your life, if people are doing a shit job, I hope you can get rid of them. And I hope you can know if people are screwing you over or aren't doing a good job. And, and what your recourse measures are. And we don't get any of that <laughs> with this right. institution in any way. And so like the frustration and the like even despair <laughs> that people have of the court is totally warranted, even if they are deciding in a way that you think is fit. Right. Like if you care about transparency, if you care about accountability, this court is still not giving that to you. Exactly right. And it's like, look, I understand if the press wants to tell it like liberals versus conservative justices, right? If they want to do that, I mean, we've talked before about how we're frustrated by that. But hey, if you want to do that, there's a way to do that and hold people accountable, right? There's a way to dig deeper. You know, who's the leader of the liberals on the court? Who's the leader of the conservatives in the court right now? What's their strategy this term? How has it changed since last term? What are their effective rhetorical points that they're deploying in their, in their opinions? Are they making major policy or position statements during interviews or extracurricular activities, speeches that they have? Maybe surface that. What's their political base pushing them to do? You know, all these... <sighs> All these meetings of the Federalist Society, right? All these papers that the Federalist Society is putting out, for example. You know, what are they saying, these, these other organizations? Are these justices following the lead of that base? Are they following the lead of the president who appointed them? In what way are they not following that lead? What cases are these justices probably looking for? What policy issues do they seem to be advancing slowly or quickly? I could see, you know... A, a graphic, right? Here's, we, we know how, for example, John Roberts slowly advances his policies. He's been destroying the, or maybe we should not say destroying, maybe that's a freighted term, but he has been eroding the basic tenets of the 1968 civil rights legislation, right? Like he's been eroding that for a long time. How is he in his progress towards that goal? Let's try to understand what he's trying to do this term in advancing that goal. And what would these justices need to be more effective, right? If this is what these justices are trying to do, and believe me, justices are trying to do something. They have things they want to do. Clarence Thomas has things he wants to do. And he tips Ginny his hat Thomas has things she wants pretty to clearly, do. right? But, okay, knowing that, what would these justices need to do to be more effective at advancing those goals? How are they making entreaties to swing justices? On what dimensions are they limiting or advancing the impact of decisions that they like or don't like, right? What does a win look like for the liberals right now? They, they can't really win a lot, but help us understand whether they're winning or not on their own terms. What's the best they could possibly do? Are they failing at that or are they doing a good job? We don't even know, do we? We don't even know. The current press is not helping us know these things. We don't know the difference between them doing a good job or a bad job, a great win or a mediocre one or a loss. We don't know. If the press isn't giving those tools, giving us those tools for understanding, then they're not doing their job. And there needs to be editors and bosses at these news organizations who value that type of work, right? Someone needs to be assigned it. Someone needs to be given a budget. Someone needs to be reviewed and edited and proofed. And it's, we're not saying like, we, ju we just need more passionate journalists. Like, no. no. Yeah. You need like media organizations to want to do this kind of work. And to recognize that's where the value is for their audience, right? So the audience can truly assess whether these institutions and these public servants are doing a good job or a bad job. 
at whatever, however you define good or bad job, just define it and help us understand what they're doing. And I understand it's not as easy. You can't use the model of let's just get an interview with them because they don't grant interviews, these justices. But that doesn't mean you can't hold them accountable. And that's that's kind of the main point of this entire season, right? Holding them accountable. One idea I had was, look, the justices don't make themselves available for interviews on the Sunday morning shows. Fine. Designate a biographer for each justice in your news organization who who is interviewed in the same way you'd interview the justice. You know, you say, oh, here we go. We have on, I'm just going to make up a name here, Carol Fernandez. She is an expert on John Roberts. John Roberts isn't here to talk about what he did, but guess what? Carol Fernandez has read every single thing John Roberts has ever written in his entire life, listened to every speech John Roberts has ever given, interviewed his friends, interviewed his coworkers, and she can tell you what's going through his head right now and where he is on the court and can answer as definitively as if the justice can why they make their decisions, what they, what they bring to their decision-making. I mean, imagine how valuable that would be, right? Whenever a court decision is, is dropped, whenever there's a controversial thing that one of these justices does, bring on an expert. If you can't bring on the person, bring on an expert on that person, not just an expert on the court who is a quote-unquote court watcher. That's not detailed enough. We need someone who specializes on these people. There's only nine of them. You can do it. It's not that hard. You've got right. And the final thing I'll say is I know news organizations love to cover the latest controversy. What is the latest controversy? Who is the, what do they say, the, the person of the day on Twitter, right? You don't want to be the person of the day on Twitter? I don't know. Colbert is always on my list. I don't understand what's wrong with my Twitter, but Stephen Colbert is always a person of the day. Really? Yes. What do you mean? Like he's doing something? I have seen, I don't know. Just my algorithm is broken. And Stephen Colbert is always the person of the day. <laughs> That's really funny. It's not that funny <laughs> <laughs> to warrant being the person of the day. Your show's not that good. <laughs> the media loves to cover controversy. But the media should be strategic and pick a controversy that matters to the court and dig in a little bit for us to understand more about how the court operates and to hold the court more accountable. For example, why don't you dig in on the issue of diversity among clerks? That is an issue that has been around for a long time, and there's a lot that you can dig into on that. Make that a focus. Do a number of stories on that. Just drill in, drill in, drill in, drill in to that topic. You don't have to be beholden to the court's calendar. Or you could talk about capture by elite lawyers. We were just talking about this, Naomi, right? How many, back in the 1980s, I think it was like 5% of court decisions were, or court cases were argued by members of the Supreme Court bar. Now it's over 50%, right? These elite lawyers have really captured the court and they are authoring tons of the briefs that ultimately, the, the petitions, I should say, that ultimately get picked up by the court. That's a problem. Or the media could choose a controversy like why the Supreme Court has reduced their docket, basically cut the number of cases that they cover in half in the last 30 years. What's behind that, right? Who in power wants it that way? How are they getting away with it? What's the impact on the country, on the public? These are all controversies within the court that are not being covered the way they should be covered. And if the media, which likes controversy, wants to cover controversy and needs to cover the court, which they do, then just pick one up and do it. You don't have to wait for Clarence Thomas to say something else outrageous. You can pick something meaningful. Sure. And something that will be interesting to write and something that's be interesting to read. Yes. My God, that stuff is boring. Like the just, you know, what outrageous thing did yeah, this justice say? Yeah, all the like hot yeah, takes. Exactly. Writing right. 400 words on a hot take. Dream bigger. Exactly. And the last thing I'll say is don't be afraid of pissing off the court. If you're pissing off the court, you're doing a good job. You haven't pissed off the court in like ever. <laughs> Maybe you're due. Yes. If they take away your press badge, you're doing a good job. I mean, there's only like 14 to get rid of. Yeah. I may, it might be like 18, but it's less than like 25. It's ridiculous. 
So that is it for our Supreme Court season. There's been so many thoughts and feelings and rants. It was a supreme season, right? I mean, we we talked about a lot. We dug in in a way we never have before on a single issue. Yeah, and I think what I have appreciated the most is the opportunity to realize how pervasive something is. Like you think it's pervasive and then you like look a little bit closer and you're like, oh man, this. Like what's the something you're talking about? Like the Supreme Court. Like we knew the Supreme Court coverage wasn't great. Right. And we were trying to understand like all the different ways and you just like keep peeling layer after layer after layer of inadequate coverage. Yeah. As George Costanza said about peeling an onion. I'm going to keep on investigating. This thing is like an onion. The more layers you peel, the more it stinks. (laughs) (laughs) What an idiot. (laughs) His food is probably terrible at home, yeah. George Costanza. Yes. The most boring food. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I agree. It's I, I, it's just astounding. I didn't realize how bad the coverage was until until we did this season. And, and originally in the season, we were going to interview a bunch of reporters. And by the end of it, I was like, they're not going to want to talk to us. We've been very critical. <laughs> very, 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 very critical. But we've learned a lot. And we have more to say in a future episode, our next episode, about the future of Polylog. So keep an eye out for that. Till then, enjoy your Thanksgiving or whatever major holiday you have coming up, if it's not this week that you're listening to this. Exactly right. And don't be afraid to have some big conversations about what you're reading or listening or noticing is not available for consumption in your news spice up your family dinner we like it spicy yeah maybe sometimes a little bit of onion it's fine (laughs) and if you have any thoughts you are welcome to share them if you have your own ideas for reform please send them our way you can email us at podcast at polylog.com you can follow me on twitter at bstidle you can follow me on twitter at sodonamely underscore and you can always follow the show at polylogcast Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk with you again real soon. Bye. Bye.